0: Good morning, I'm Jim Rocket. I'm the past chair of the Financial Services and E-commerce uh, Practice Group at the Federal Society. And I want to welcome you here on behalf of the Practice Group. We have uh, in our minds hit a home run uh, with this panel, not only by having Judge Jones as the moderator, but having some exceptionally fine panelists who will be introduced to you, but also hitting on a topic that we picked seven months ago and there was a debate among our, our panelists whether or not there was any sex appeal to it and whether, and whether or not it would still be with us by November. Well, it's, we've, we've proved uh, uh, with the help of Bert Ely that uh, we actually had uh, uh, some prescience in, in understanding what was going on in the marketplace. And we're hoping that our panelists today can help us decipher the subprime meltdown and the consequences and whether or not there are going to be fixes that are necessary or whether the marketplace will take care of itself. With that I'd like to introduce uh, someone who who in the federal society really needs no introduction, Judge Edith Jones of the Fifth Circuit.
1: Thank you very much. uh, begin by saying, as Southwest Airlines does every time I fly them, we know you have alternatives, and we're glad you chose us. The, uh, the uh, constitution of this uh, group means that you are clearly the people who are the most interested in what uh, many people think really runs American economy, which is free enterprise and, and private decision making. And aren't we all investors and the prescience of the uh, of the uh, uh, financial service group in having selected this topic also indicates that maybe maybe the Federalist Society ought to get into uh, investment advice. <laughs> the topic today is uh, uh, extremely timely, as you know from reading the headlines. Um, I'm as a former bankruptcy lawyer, I'm uh, uh, reminded of uh, what happened in Texas in the 1980s when. Uh, Ronald Reagan decontrolled oil price controls, and overnight, uh, the oil business fell into a tailspin because there had been so much um, uh, built-up fat involved in complying with regulations that that couldn't be supported from a free market perspective. So we were in the heavily involved in the bankruptcy business in the oil field industry and also in the real estate industry when the thrift, uh, thrift companies went under and more recently we've had a little experience called Enron and what brings all these together with the topic we have today is that every time this happened, this kind of meltdown happened, it was preceded by the building of some very large office buildings in downtown Houston. <laughs> Oil companies, then banks, then the famous Enron building itself. And today we have mortgages, which are little bitty people's houses, uh, but no less uh, uh, emblematic, it seems to me, when there's a irrational exuberance in a market, people build things. It's called the edifice complex. So don't ever invest in an industry characterized by overbuilding, as far as I'm concerned. We have great speakers today. Uh, the first is Ms. Ann Canfield, who's president of Canfield and Associates Inc., a, a company she formed more than 10 years ago. It's a Washington-based government relations consulting firm. Uh, she is executive director of the Consumer Mortgage Coalition, which is a trade association representing national mortgage providers. She has appeared publicly on national TV programs, at industry conferences, and testified on Capitol Hill. Uh, To make a very long resume, uh, 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 too short but useful for our purposes, she began her career with 10 years of experience on Capitol Hill, and was also the uh, manager of government relations for GE Capital Services. Uh, Ms. Canfield will uh, introduce the sub issues of surrounding subprime mortgages to the audience and explain what the industry perspective is and uh, what actions have been taken by industry to address the uh, mortgage problems. Ms. Campfield
2: okay, um, can we have the slide presentation? Great. Okay. To get up my glasses. Thank you very much for inviting me this morning. I'm amazed that so many people are here on Saturday morning. <laughs> At any rate, I guess it's a timely topic, as you were mentioning. Um, could there be a bigger mess? I don't think so. In my career, I don't think I've, I've been involved in various messes, uh, but this has certainly uh, taken the cake. Um, Let's review with the next slide. Uh, Let's review what happened. It's a traditional meltdown. Um, You had easy credit and then it got easier and easier credit. You had a drop in the standards for providing credit uh, and that uh, resulted in a lending induced real estate boom. And uh, there was eventually a triggering event that provided that uh, resulted in a liquidity crisis. And then the real estate bust, as we've seen. So uh, this has happened before, but uh, the repercussions this time are a little bit uh, are more widely known and uh, more widely felt than in the past. Next slide. Uh, the boom. During the boom, uh, we had high homeownership rates, uh, the highest ever in the country, almost uh, 70%. Uh, We had an increased uh, investment properties, investor-owned properties, and second homes. Uh, In addition, there was rapid home price appreciation, and that uh, made uh, getting into a home uh, less uh, affordable, which then drove people to try, uh, if we wanted to buy a home, to maybe uh, get into mortgage products that uh, were, you know, not the traditional 30- or 15-year fixed-rate products. Uh, And there was an overall boost to the economy with lots of builders building, lots of carpenters carpentering, (laughs) lots of people in the business uh, uh, doing, uh, you know, providing, participating in the boom. Next slide. Eventually, I'm sure not many of you know what an ABX index index is, but it was the first um, precursor that there might be a problem. And uh, what is it? It's an index of collateralized debt securities. Um, it's based on bonds from 20 deals, and the ratings on those bonds range from AAA A uh, down to triple BBB-. and there's basically three series of bonds that are in the ABX index, and there was a 40-point drop in price um, in that index, and that was probably the first signal that there was something uh, wrong. There was a mismatch in the market. Ne- next, next slide. Because um, what are the implications of that mismatch? Um, the index prices are real market; they reflect fair fair value. And so, what happened is that the price drop really reflected a battle between the hedge funds and the CDOs. Normally, everybody blames every, you know, hedge funds for everything, but in this case, they actually blew the whistle. And so, they were the first to recognize the the abnormality in the market, uh, and, and they were trading the ABX index to take advantage of the of the mismatch, essentially. Next slide, please. Who were the traditional arbiters of credit? Because I think this is important to see, you know, who used to provide credit uh, the, the more traditional way. Initially, there were portfolio lenders, uh, the local banks, SNLs uh, that we all know. Um, then, you know, the securitization uh, market evolved, and you had uh, agency MBS, uh, Fannie, Freddie, and Judy May. With regard to Fannie Mae and, and Freddie Mac, uh, the M&I, the mortgage insurers participated uh, because their charters require that, uh, that they have uh, insurance protection for loans above, uh, with, with the lower down payment loans with, that have higher uh, uh, than 80% LTV risk. And so uh, the, between the GSEs and the mortgage insurers, uh, they, uh, they were more the traditional. Arbiters of credit is deciding who was going to get credit or not. Um, In the prime securitization space, you had a first-loss investor, Uh, so that basically that investor was looking at the pools, uh, re-underwriting a a a portion of the pools, um, making sure that the um, uh, the pool, the loans in the pools met the standards that were that the the, the mortgage banker that was selling the the loans up to the pool um, said. that that those standards were met. Um, In addition, the the investors used to get uh, comfortable with the mortgage banker to make sure that their practices uh, were what they said they were. Um, In the subprime securitization space, the rating agencies um, also played a role uh, and also uh, re-underwrote portions of the pools, you know, on an ad hoc basis. Next slide, please. So what happened here, in our view, is that you have a classic industrial organization problem. Um, The way the business worked changed. And this is important to understand. What happened is, in the way the business worked, you have independent mortgage brokers who today originate anywhere from 50 to 70 percent of the mortgages in the market. They make all of their money up front in the transaction and uh, don't have any residual risk or liability if the mortgage goes bad. So they're like a car salesman. They basically make a commission once the loan is closed and they're out of the deal. Um, You then have mortgage banks. Um, You've heard some of the brand names like New Century, AmeriQuest, uh, companies like that. Some of, almost 50 of them have gone out of business. Um, They were very thinly capitalized. Uh, They were very lightly regulated. They were state regulated and were never examined. And they were dependent on warehouse lines because what would happen is is that their origination network was the mortgage brokers. The mortgage brokers would send loans to the to the mortgage bank. They would fund them for 30, 60, 90 days using warehouse lines of credit, and then they would sell them up to the investment bank. Um, and in selling up to the investment bank, they the, everything relied on the rep and warrant. They would represent and warrant that the loans that they were selling into the pools that the investment bank was putting together, um, you know, met a certain standard and quality. And that is important because they really didn't have any capital to back up the rep, reps and warrants. And the securitization then occurred via Wall Street. Uh, the the investment banks would pull up the mortgages. They did have some residual risk on the mortgages, but the fees were fairly substantial. So what you see in this piece, and we'll get to the next slide in a minute, is everybody's making fees. Um, The owners of the mortgage banks got their money out a long time ago. So you had mortgage brokers making fees, the mortgage banks making fees, um, the investment banks making fees. And can we have the next slide? And then the bonds were placed in collateralized debt obligations, which everybody now has heard of, that most people had not heard of before. <laughs> and so, um, and there's all types of CDOs. Uh, there's synthetic CDOs, cube CDOs, squared CDOs. You, know, you know, there's a, a variety of different CD, CDOs out there. But what happened is is that the CDO managers, uh, the Wall Street firms typically outsourced the management of the CDO funds to small firms on Wall Street, uh, also without any capital. And um, they basically uh, tranched the CDOs so that uh, and then sold securities uh, you know in the in the marketplace. Um, they worked with the rating agencies to rate each of the tranches. And um, what's happened in the last four or five years is that the re-underwriting of maybe 10% of the pools on an ad hoc basis that used to occur maybe four or five years ago really ended, and um, everybody moved to relying on the rating agencies' models in rating the uh, the, the risk in the securities. And go back a little. <laughs> Uh, So then what happened, and this is interesting, is that each of the tranches that were sold uh, then got retranched. And the CDO managers worked with the rating agencies to rate all of the tranches for the newly tranched. And it expanded out maybe five or six times. So you had, you know, tranching on tranching on tranching. And uh, basically your investment what is dependent uh, is as good as the contract before you because you really don't have an asset. It's really the contract before you. And I know everybody, most people here are probably attorneys and everybody thinks they can write the perfect contract. But when there's billions of dollars in losses, all of a sudden the contracts don't look so perfect. (laughs) So so as a result, um, I think what's going to happen here is it's going to take years to work through all of these contracts because the lawsuits are just beginning. So what that meant is is that the securities were sold out to investors. You had to be pretty big in order to buy this stuff. You bought small pieces of it, but it was all the same people that were buying small pieces of the same stuff. So that's why you've seen some of the uh, blow-ups, you know, some of the... uh, big firms taking write-downs, et cetera. And there's, we'll get into all that a little bit later. But, uh, you know, they were all buying little pieces of the same stuff. And it's in the billions of dollars. And so um, the investors, I think, really thought they were largely institution. They're worldwide. Um, and uh, they, uh, I, I don't think, really could know the risk in the investments that they were making. Uh, there was, I don't think, any possible way when you were buying a tranche of a tranche of a tranche that you could possibly know that risk. And in addition, I think uh, the way it was sold, everybody was looking for yield. Uh, These paid a little bit better than Treasuries. They actually should have been paying a lot more than Treasuries, given the risk uh, that was in them. But uh, people thought it was mortgages. It's safe. Fannie and Freddie were in some of the deals. And so, therefore, it couldn't be that bad, you know, sold. <coughs> so, you basically had blind investors. And that provided an enormous amount of liquidity that went back down the chain, because you had lots of liquidity out here in the capital markets coming back down the chain through in, a, in a production, you know, system at the front end with brokers and mortgage bankers that was built to produce loans. So. You had lots of money that was willing to fund the production and lots of people in the production business. So there was, you know, they were out there manufacturing loans and the market was funding it. Um, the problem was is that, in our view, the investors really didn't know what they were investing in until, you know, it blew up. Okay, let's, let's go to the next slide. Um, the subprime arbiters of credit... Uh, are, you know, small, they took, uh, investment banks, as I mentioned, took a small residual class of risk, um, uh, but, uh, and, and they're having to pay for that. Um, the risk was concentrated in the triple B classes of securities. Um, the triple B classes were actually the classes that were purchased by the CDOs for the most part. And then the CDOs took those triple B classes, as as I mentioned, split them up and retranched and re-rated and got the ratings on the retranched pieces time and time again. Um, In all of those transactions, an actual, actually a significant amount of risk was transferred to the A-rated CDOs. And so um, because of the way the, working with the rating agency models, uh, it, it, it looked like it was actually a much better investment than it was, as I mentioned. Uh, next, next. How do the rating agencies work? Um, they basically had an ability and willingness, they thought, to uh, uh, rate these loans. Um, uh, they were rating stated income, 100% LTV, which means the consumer didn't have any money in the, in the transaction. So very high-risk loans. Um, and they were giving them fairly healthy ratings. And so uh, there was lots of liquidity to fund this. Uh, In addition, there's a correlation um, factor here that's important to understand. The CDOs consisted um, of 75% of them with subprime collateral. So even the I have an, uh, actually kind of an amusing story. Of a very good friend of mine uh, has a couple of German banks that were in the newspapers as investors. And early in the year, he was over there visiting them, and he asked, "Well, do you have any subprime exposure?" And they were like, "Oh, no, we don't have any of that. No, no, no." <laughs> well, do you have any CDO bonds? Oh, well, yes, we have a lot of that, you know. And ha- had no clue that they mostly had subprime exposure here, so they really didn't understand what they <laughs> what they had. Um, at any rate, uh, the subprime deals were geographically dispersed, diverse. It was, all, you know, in uh, various real estate markets across the country. And the common risk factor was is that everything was banking on home price appreciation. And um, that's not a good formula for success <laughs> over the long term. Um, in addition, the rating agencies had somewhat of an inverse incentive, too, because they got paid by the deal. so. You know, the more deals they did, the more they made. And um, so there's been a lot of focus in the press on the rating agencies uh, once again. And so, uh, because maybe the incentives weren't aligned correctly. As I mentioned, this is an industrial organization issue. You know, in order for, uh, in our view, for this problem not to reoccur, we're going to have to reorganize the industry a little bit here. Uh, But at any rate, let's go to the next slide. Then the bus came. You know, we have falling home prices. Uh, the early payment defaults, what happened is, is that, you know, finally the loans started going bad. So, you know, uh, you, you had all these loans going up all the way out to the investors and who knows where. Uh, the borrowers weren't able to pay. Uh, the loans started to come back down the chain to the mortgage bank, the new centuries of the world, AmeriQuest, companies like that. And because the investors were uh, uh, looking at the reps and warrants, and they were saying, well, this loan doesn't meet the rep and warrant that this was attached to the loan as as it was sent up. And uh, the new century, for example, went bust. They went bankrupt on early payment defaults, which means that there were so many loans coming back to them that were the applicant or the consumer was defaulting in the first three months of the mortgage. Normally, that's a situation where fraud has occurred. It's very rare, but there was such a volume of them, and they didn't have any capital to back up the reps and warrants, so they went bankrupt. Um, that, that is a serious problem because if, the reps, if you have a, a system that's built on reps and warrants and there's no capital to back up the reps and warrants, there's no discipline in the process. All you have are people taking fees. Um, as a result, there's been significant tightening of credit standards in the marketplace. Uh, a lot of products that were previously offered are now not being offered, probably, in our view, over-tightening, but that's because of the mess in the capital markets. Uh, in addition, there's significant investors, investor losses. Um, the real issue is, and this is an in- interesting one, the, it's not that the size of the problem is that large. It's there was an article written saying, where's Waldo? Nobody knows where the losses all are. Uh, you just don't know. And so as a result, it's sort of like if you were lending to 1,000 banks you, and you knew that 50 were in trouble, you wouldn't lend to the 50. But nobody knows who the 50 are. So the size of this problem in comparison to the size of the, of the, of the entire capital market is not that large. The problem is nobody knows where the losses are. So uh, that's had an enormous impact on credit markets. The CDO structure itself has been, you know, obviously brought into question, and it is used to finance other industries. And so uh, everything's really been frozen up. Uh, in addition... In addition, um, homeowners have begun to default uh, and the foreclosures are starting to uh, occur. The biggest number of arm loans or adjustable rate mortgages that are going to be resetting will be at the end of January, beginning of February. Um, it typically, depending on the state in which you live, you know, it could take eight to ten months for the, a foreclosure to go through. Uh, obviously, the industry is in... You know, defaults, foreclosures are not good for investors. They're not good for lenders. So the industry is in a major uh, program mode here to try and keep homeowners in their homes and uh, prevent them from going to foreclosure uh, where possible. Uh, You you don't want to put a homeowner in another bad loan, but you do want to put them, if if it's possible, into a loan that uh, uh, works for them over the longer term. In addition um, we 're finding that as through the workouts that uh, I think a lot of people you know watch those late night infomercials how to make a million dollars in real estate and uh, one of the tricks of the trade was uh, say you 're going to live in that house that's going to be owner occupied because you get a quarter point better you know net, you know rate on your interest rate so as we 're working through this we're finding that a lot of you know a number of owner occupied loans are not really owner occupied homes. Um, uh, they are uh, they're turned out to be investor properties. Uh, where uh, the de- where are the defaults? Uh, you're seeing the you know obviously Florida is a mess, uh, Las Vegas, uh, Sa- San Diego, Central Valley, California, um, uh, Atlanta area. You know, the Mid Atlantic is is better shape. The Upper Midwest has a combination of problems. Uh, not only as a result of some of the uh, loans that were made, but also the auto industry fell out of bed, so everybody's lost their job, too. So there's a combination of things in that uh, section of the country that are making the the situation even worse. So people are going to have to work through this. It's going to be worse next year. Um, We're thinking that by the end of next year, we'll have worked through most of it and hopefully be back on track. Um, In addition, because the accounting rules have changed, um, the new mark-to-market accounting rules went into effect, so everybody is having to mark-to-market, uh, their positions. And since there's no market out there to sell this stuff, you're really having to take a significant write down, which is why you're seeing the big losses being reported. There's actually, in my view, real value there, but, um, from an accounting perspective, and if you have to live under Sarbanes Oxley, you're certainly not, you're going to be more conservative. So the firms are all taking big write downs. will be more at the end of the fourth quarter. It, it, the write downs are going to be very significant. But, they're still going to have these assets on the balance sheet, and in my view, over time, the, the, there's going to be value there that will come back once the market, you know, settles. Um, next slide, and I'll be done in a minute. Um, it, what's the impact on the, on the uh, major players? Obviously, uh, I don't think independent mortgage banks who lack the capital are going to survive the down cycle. A lot of them are going to go away. Uh, they also are subject to state-by-state state regulation, which is a very costly thing and inefficient. And uh, they, are, they have less efficient cost structures. The Wall Street mortgage banking operations, if you've seen in the press, uh, don't have the stomach for it. They're, not, they're really not going to sit through the market slumps as they're getting out of the mortgage business. Um, homeowners, are especially investor-owned properties, are going to experience slaps at declining prices. Um, And uh, uh, the bank, can we have the next slide? Let's see. I'm sorry, the next slide. The banks probably are in the best position. They have the regulatory expertise to deal with all of the issues. Um, To a certain extent, they have preemption on some of the loans. Uh, They also are very efficient originators and servicers. The GSEs, Fannie and Freddie, they do have an opportunity to demonstrate value. The rating agencies, uh, this is about the sixth time in my career they've been at the center of some blow up. They'll probably survive this again. Um, and the hedge funds and value investors, uh, the short-term, you know, the hedge funds that were betting on the AB index, ABX index and trading on that, that opportunity is over. But I think uh, for value investors, there's value in investing in real estate over the longer term. And some of the paper that's available. So the timing is important on that. And the last slide, really. Um, obviously, in our view, the problem was is that um, uh, you had investors, you need to, you cha- the problem is is that people responsible for making the loans had too little uh, financial interest in the performance of the loans and the people with the financial interest had too little uh, involvement in how the loans were made. So, uh, the next slide. So, what we're saying is is that there needs to be a change in the organizational structure and that you should replace the current chain of reps and warrants with, and the calls for having assignee liability, which I think Alan's probably going to be for here. Replaced with the direct obligation from the party responsible for the potential breaches uh, to the party who was damaged by the breach. And we have solutions as to how to do that uh, that are a little bit more complex, which I won't go into in, this mor- to in this, or my talk this morning. But we do think over the long term that's going to have to happen in the last slide. <laughs> because, um, the next slide, I'm sorry. Uh, there is still tremendous global liquidity out there in the global credit markets. Uh, there are evolving arbiters of credit risk, uh, people of credit. So, you know, we've seen there's been different, as I mentioned, you know, different people, different organizations uh, were the arbiters of credit in the past. be no ones in the future. Um, it seems about every 10 years we have a mortgage crisis, and uh, we're going to have another one unless the whole structure of how the industry operates has changed. So with that, I look forward to everybody else's remarks and hope I didn't go too far over. <laughs> Thank you.
1: And there you had as brief a primer on the problem as one could hope to have. Uh, our next speaker is Alan Fishbein. He's the Director of Housing and Credit Policy for the Consumer Federation of America. He directs the Consumer Federation's pilot, which, as you all know, is uh, one of the... Uh, top nonprofit associations uh, working with uh, for co- on behalf of consumers. He directs the policy work in the areas of housing and housing finance and serves as the chief spokesman and representative on these topics with the news media. Previously, Mr. Fishbein was at the U.S. Department of HUD, uh, the Center for Community Change, and he has been a recipient of the National Community Reinvestment Coalition's Senator William Proxmire Award for Career uh, Achievement, Mr. Fishbein.
3: <laughs> Judge Jones, thank you very much for the introduction and it is a uh, pleasure to be here and, and get a ch- an opportunity to talk on a Saturday morning and um, I appreciate the fact there's an audience here to hear us. Um, what I'd like to do is um, give a perspective of um, the trends and uh, circumstances that you've been hearing about um, as they pertain to consumers and borrowers in the marketplace. I think um, Ann did a really terrific job of covering uh, incredible amount of ground in a short period of time. Um, I might uh, have some slightly different takeaways than she did on some of those points, but um, I think she she certainly covered the the waterfront with respect to uh, what's driving the problem. So I would like to make a few observations uh, in in rapid order in the short time that I have. Uh, First that the uh, current epidemic of uh, foreclosures is largely concentrated in the subprime market Um, and um, it's widespread and it's very severe. Uh, For many, many months, the extent of this problem was really being underestimated, I think, from some, and particularly in the mortgage sector. But I think um, by summer, uh, the obviousness of this uh, really is apparent to everybody. The primary victims of this, uh, we have to remember, are really hardworking families who, instead of gaining the benefits of home ownership, are struggling to keep their homes. Uh, Most uh, families facing foreclosure. Well, almost 90% uh, involve primary residences, um, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. Moody's estimates that 3 million uh, families uh, will have loans that will go into default this year and next, and of those 3 million, 2 million will go into foreclosure and result in, in home loss. This. Quite succinctly is the worst uh, foreclosure crisis in 25 years. It's estimated that 20% of the subprime loans originated last year and um, this year will result in home loss uh, for the homeowners. 20% and some numbers are higher than that. And it's a widespread problem. Uh, Mortgage loans entering foreclosure are up in 47 states across the country since uh, last year and up on an average of over 50%, according to statistics by the Mortgage Bankers Association. And one thing that can't be said enough is that um, not only are the uh, foreclosures impacting um, the homeowner, obviously the industry, but they also are having a spillover effect on the neighborhoods and the neighbors of the homeowners who live in these communities. A lot of subprime lending was heavily concentrated in particular geographic areas and it's contributing to depressing home price values and worsening uh, the already softening housing market. Second point, abusive loan products, reckless lending, and the lack of accountability have caused the current credit crunch, not regulation. Industries argued uh, for years now that the subprime uh, regulation would have unintended consequences of restricting credit, but now it's apparent that um, the lack of adequate regulation and reckless lending that followed has caused the present credit crunch. Um, And what's very significant is that while we've had foreclosure cycles before, the current cycle is driven by factors other than the traditional factors of um, flattening uh, home price appreciation and worsening local economies. Much of the problem was being driven by faulty loan products that were made, in many cases, to borrowers uh, for loans that never should have been made. And regulation, I think there's a growing understanding, failed to keep up with the changes, the tremendous changes in mortgage lending that uh, Ann described in her presentation. And what the failure to adopt appropriate regulation meant is that it disadvantaged responsible lenders. We had this kind of uh, Gresham's Law, in effect, uh, which pushed lending practices down to the lowest common denominator, away from the common sense rules that responsible lenders uh, typically followed for many, many years. Example, adjustable rate mortgages are certainly a reasonable option for borrowers who expect their incomes to increase. But uh, in recent years, as some prime lenders flooded the market with short-term arms, hybrid arms, that allowed families really no chance to sustain them, Most of these, and it's very important to understand, were refinancings of existing mortgages. It's been estimated that over 70% of these subprime loans were refinancings, not first mortgages made to purchase the property. And they were structured in a way in which um, after an initial two or three year period of fixed payments that were often artificially low, they could only go up, the so-called 228 and 327 loans, and they were based on very high margins. Um, which guaranteed that at the end of the initial start rate, monthly payments would explode by 30 or 40%. So they were basically collateralized loans that required refinancing and could only work as long as the home price appreciation um, kept growing at the, way, at the rate that it had grown in uh, recent years. Three, the market is not self correcting Incentives for making bad loans are still in place. In fact, Moody's uh, estimated that loans being made this year had many of the characteristics in the subprime loan of the problem loans that we've seen from um, recent years. The market uh, may tighten temporarily, but as long as these perverse incentives for brokers and lenders uh, to make any loan that Wall Street will buy continue, we'll see uh, a continuation of these problems most assuredly down, down the road. And that we've learned that um, while the market um, uh, can uh, disperse risk and try to price for risk, or at least they thought they could before this crisis, they uh, the typical homeowner cannot. The typical homeowners, most of their financial wealth is built into this home. And so if the home fails and they're unable to sustain the mortgage, they are the ones who suffer the most severe consequences. Uh, fourth, disclosures. In and of themselves, are inadequate. Yeah. I'm going to have uh, Mr. Pollack follow me after, and there is a role for better disclosure in the marketplace. But I get, think it's the view of my organization, many other consumer groups, that further disclosures to consumers, adding to the mountains of uh, papers, um, is going to be a real challenge to have any impact on borrowers making intelligent decisions in the marketplace, uh, because frequently. The disclosures are contradicted by or explained with assurances by mortgage brokers and lenders, and I suspect that will continue in the marketplace. Um, Common fallacy, particularly for subprime loans, is that borrowers are somehow consciously choosing these 13 and 14% mortgage loans um, out of choice, that it's not dictated to them, uh, but somehow is negotiated. But for those who've examined the subprime market, and I suspect many in this audience probably have little acquaintance with the subprime market and have dealt with the market that is the most competitive part of mortgage lending, which is the prime market. But the subprime market is not a truly competitive market. Um, Loans are not sold on on price. They're sold on monthly payment. They're push marketed, aggressively marketed through um, mortgage broker channels which have little incentive uh, on how the loans will perform long term and um, that's been an important source of the problem that we're seeing now. Fifth, legislations work in its way through Congress that can make a significant difference in preventing abusive and reckless lending practices that contributed to today's mortgage foreclosure crisis. Um, but this legislation certainly will need upgrading if it's really to achieve its purposes. It lacks um, certain important adequate remedies for victims, uh, insufficient means for enforcing the law, has overly uh, broad preemption that really takes the states out from playing a meaningful role with respect to the secondary market, and could undermine uh, key pre- preventions, uh, protections that would prevent foreclosures in the future. Uh, and my last point I guess I conclude on is that while improving consumer protection legislation, would improve the market going forward and, and very possibly prevent the kind of mortgage mess that we're seeing now, uh, it will do nothing for the immediate crisis that millions of families are facing. And we'll need some public policy responses uh, in order to address that, if not, if, to save the homes of literally hundreds of thousands of families. Uh, one uh, proposal that is also making its way through Congress is an idea to, fix, uh, to do a small fix to the bankruptcy code that would uh, have the potential of saving the homes of 600,000 homeowners. Uh, We think these are um, uh, crisis times and they require crisis um, response and we're looking forward to that kind of public policy fix coming forward um, if not the end of this year then certainly into next year. I think I'll conclude at that point and look forward to questions. Thank you.
1: use of the word bankruptcy certainly uh, raised my, uh, my interest here and I do hope someone will ask a question about that because uh, mortgages have not been subject to readjustment in, in, uh, in bankruptcy since the 1930s. So uh, that would be a very, very consequential uh, development which is currently at issue in Congress. Our next speaker, uh, Alex Pollack is a uh, former president and chief executive officer of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board in Chicago. Uh, He he is uh, currently a resident fellow at AEI, focusing on financial policy issues, uh, including uh, housing finance and corporate governance. He's written numerous articles on financial systems and management and is a director of various uh, uh, entities, including uh, the Great Books Foundation, Uh, My understanding is that he's one of the experts on disclosure issues in regard to uh, this kind of lending. Mr. Pollack.
4: Judge Jones, distinguished fellow panelists, ladies and gentlemen. The housing bubble and now the housing bust and the subprime bubble and now the subprime bust are intertwined. Uh, and they are a big issue. We haven't yet uh, this morning talked uh, about the aggregate numbers, so let me do that. Uh, they're about $1.3 trillion in outstanding subprime loans. If we add in the next grade up, the non prime alt-A so-called loans, it takes it up to about a total of $2 trillion. That's within an aggregate mortgage market with outstanding loans of of approximately $10 trillion, but more important yet is the fact that this all concerns housing and this really is a housing bust following a housing bubble and the aggregate value of houses in America is a number like $21 trillion, much bigger, say, than the aggregate uh, value of all traded stocks. Well, I want to start out with uh, four quotations. Uh, one is a headline recently uh, in the American Banker, subprime, this is the quote, subprime losses may hit $400 billion. Well, $400 billion is a, a number that can get your attention. Uh, that, one of the typical characteristics of bust is that you get an, an escalating competition in how big somebody can predict the losses will be. And that competition is now on. We started off at 75 or 100, um, then 150. um, Chairman Bernanke suggested $150 billion the other day, uh, then 200, and now this 400. My own number is, in terms of the credit losses, uh, something like $150 billion is a reasonable guess. I'm not talking about the losses in market value of securities, the actual credit losses. And you would get that by the following pretty simple math. Start off with the $2 trillion of combined subprime and alt-A loans. If we have a 20% aggregate uh, default rate, which Alan mentioned, and is, is a reasonable guess, uh, that would get you $400 billion, And then loss on default of 35 or 40%, which is maybe a reasonable stab, would, would get you a number like $150 billion. Well, $150 billion dollars is a big number. How can we think about this? My, my uh, second quotation is from the great economist Hyman P. Minsky, who was the theorist of the endogenous buildup of financial fragility uh, in financial systems, and uh, he was also a good friend of mine. Uh, Minsky wrote, we, we have to remember that, quote, acceptable financing techniques depend upon subjective preferences and views of bankers. Success breeds a disregard of the possibility of failure. The absence of serious financial difficulties over a substantial period leads to the development of a euphoric economy in which increasing short-term financing of long positions becomes a way of life. And all of the very interesting financial instruments which Anne discussed actually are various clever ways of financing long-term risky positions short and, and we, we build up an extremely high leverage just as Minsky would have predicted I'm sure he's looking down from financial valhalla and feeling once again uh, vindicated. Now my, uh, in the same line stated more quickly is the following quotation, the most common beginning of disaster was a sense of security unquote. Uh, this is from Paterculus, uh, a Roman historian writing about 30 AD uh, and <laughs> it's still true. Uh, and my final quote is from uh, John Maynard Keynes, a prudent banker is one who goes broke when everybody else goes broke. Or we might say a prudent banker is one who loses multiple billions of dollars when everybody else is losing multiple billions of dollars. Now, uh, what was it that created the sense of security? As other speakers have mentioned, it was the rise in house prices. And when, when, when in, in any financial euphoria or boom, uh, there is a sustained rise in the asset which is the object of the boom, whether it be oil commercial real estate, gold, silver, tulips, uh, whatever it is. So in this case, it was houses. And, and as house prices are rising, uh, something important happens. People actually make a lot of money. A lot of people, not only mortgage brokers, but ordinary people who take highly imprudent mortgages, But they buy a house with them that uh, if it then appreciates in a couple of years, 30 or 40 percent, they have made a tremendously successful speculation. Made a lot of money. We had an eight-year run of this. Uh, Now, a really great insight is that there is nothing so psychologically destabilizing as to to watch your neighbor get rich. And, And... that's what happened, and that's what always happens in these booms, and it sets up the bust. Now, something else that happens from a sustained rise of asset price is that the risk is hidden. When asset prices, or in this case house prices, are rising rapidly, delinquencies are very low, defaults are very low, credit losses are very low. The, the, the risk is hidden both to the lenders and to the borrowers by the escalation in the house prices. And this time, ladies and gentlemen, we had the greatest house price inflation in the history of the country, at, at least uh, according uh, to, the, to the very uh, thoughtful analysis done by Professor Schiller. By far the greatest uh, inflation. And so it, it hid the risk and it induced a lot of uh, imprudent lending and imprudent borrowing, uh, and uh, we can we could discuss all the reasons for that, but what is happening now is that house prices are falling. They are likely to continue falling. Uh, responsible forecasts suggest a 15 to 20 percent uh, fall in house prices over the next couple of years. This will cause defaults to be worse because just as house prices rising, high risk, rice, bro- house prices falling. Uh, accentuate risk. And uh, as we know, we have had uh, a panic in the credit markets. Now, credit markets uh, are prone, in times of panic, to discontinuous behavior. Uh, That is to say, for a long time, there's plenty of people willing to buy something, uh, even though it may be growing quite risky, uh, as Ann's discussion showed you. And then it, they start to realize the risk. It goes down a little. Suddenly, the riskiness is apparent to everybody, and there's a, simply a cutting off of credit. So you get a basic thing that looks like an L standing on, uh, over on its side, uh, lots of credit available, and then suddenly none. I call this the plank curve, <laughs> uh, as some of you have already figured out, because of its similarity to the path of a man walking the plank. And that's exactly what happens in financial markets, and it has happened in the market for these uh, highly, highly leveraged uh, securities. Now, when we talk about leverage, what happens is that the buildup of short-term debt provided by very risk-averse lenders, like buyers of commercial paper or repurchase agreements, uh, oh, by the way, bank depositors are also extremely risk-averse lenders, but they've got a nice government guarantee, so uh, so they don't care so much. Uh, and what happened is that we had a, a forecast of the credit behavior of these subprime loans and then a tremendous lot of leverage, that is to say buildup of short-term debt, through various vehicles based on the accuracy of this forecast and the forecast turned out to be wrong. Now these forecasts were not done by stupid people, they were done by very smart people, but they, uh, they ended up with a problem and it's nice, nicely summarized by this quotation. You, you may know they talk about the professors on Wall Street or the rocket scientists on Wall Street who built these financial models and this is the quote, the rocket scientists and the subprime market created a missile that landed on themselves. And uh, so it did. And it puts me in mind of uh, a truly memorable moment in my own career uh, years ago, which was my boss leaning across his desk, looking me in the eyes and saying, Alex, it's easier to be brilliant than right." And we, ju- <laughs> we just have seen this again. Now, there there are two fundamental things that have to be done in any of these situations. There's a short-term issue and a long-term issue. The short-term issue in a financial panic and and very big bust, as we are now having, are doing sensible, temporary, short-term things to what I call bridge the bust. The danger is that you get a debt deflation, a self-reinforcing downward cycle in which everybody loses borrowers, lenders, investors. Uh, and, and you'd like to build bridges across that that pattern. Now, uh, unlike Alan, it seems absolutely clear to me that markets do self-correct. We're in the middle of a self-correction right now, but they may self-correct in this extremely uh, damaging debt deflation way. And it makes sense to think of sensible things to, uh, to bridge the bust. And we don't have time to talk about the details, uh, but two I'll just mention is uh, the use of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, as refinancers of subprime mortgages. Any government-sponsored enterprise is a deal with the government. The government gives them a lot of benefits in exchange for doing something the government wants. And in my view, now is the time for Fannie and Freddie to, to pay their side of that bargain. Secondly. Uh, uh, and maybe all of you here with your legal expertise can help this. I would like to invent a new legal way, a new legal concept, and it's a way for the mortgage servicer who is the actual decision maker in restructuring mortgages which have ended up being financed in securitized pools, for the mortgage servicer to be able to reduce the principal of the loans when it makes sense for both the lender and the borrower. There's a large negotiating space where the lender and the borrower will both win if the loan can be negotiated, but we need a legal, we need a legal invention of how to do this uh, to cut the, uh, uh, the principal while the um, uh, borrower is still in the house and to wipe out the second liens while we're at it. The great thing about foreclosure is it wipes out, wipes out the second liens, and the second liens uh, are, have lost their value, but we don't want to give them a way to uh, mess up the, the process. I, I think of this as uh, foreclosure with debtor in possession, and maybe we could invent this. Now, on the, on the long-term ways, um, there are a couple of things I'll just mention. One is, uh, uh, as Ann pointed out, we want to have a way where the original credit decision-making lender stays involved in the credit for the life of the loan. To me, this is a straightforward uh, uh, thing you could do. You simply have in securitization, and we very much want the financial power of securitization to move. The, I'll just, throw out a couple of technical terms here: the uh, interest rate risk and the options or prepayment risk of long-term mortgages to capital markets to bondholders. We want that. But at the same time, the credit risk ought to stay with the maker of the loan. And I'd like to see a securitization system where the lenders simply retain all the credit risk while the funding comes from the capital markets. This would be simple to do as long as you could change our regulatory capital ratios. And we now have punitive regulatory capital ratios on such a structure that, in my mind, make no sense and could be fixed. The second long-term thing we could do, as has been mentioned, is to create uh, disclosures to consumers that are actually understandable. Current disclosures are not written for consumers. They're written to protect the lenders by by perhaps some of you who work for the lenders uh, creating these. And I have proposed that you can actually do this. On one page, you can't read this, but here it is. It's the Pollock one-page form. It's available on the AEI website, or to anybody who would like it. It isn't just one more disclosure. It would be a separate disclosure, very important, a disclosure from the lender, not a disclosure from the broker, that tells the the borrower the five or six things that the borrower really needs to know in. Plain down home speak. And it seems to me that this is, in fact, uh, one of the most important things we could do for the structure of the mortgage market going forward. I think it would, and uh, Americans deal with a lot of salesmen successfully, uh, but there's a fundamental principle you ought to tell the truth about what you're doing in a way that's understandable, and that should apply to mortgage loans as well. We have this in some. some, Legislation now in the House and proposed legislation in the Senate, and I think it would be a, uh, a serious step forward for the mortgage market. Uh, in sum, we have a really big, complicated problem. Uh, there are some short things, short-term things you can do, and there are some long-term things you can do. And, uh, and I will especially appreciate all of your help in figuring out these uh, legal issues, as mentioned. Thank you.
1: Uh, Our final uh, presenter is going to be Ms. Montrese Goddard-Yakimov. She's with the Office of Thrift Supervision and is responsible for the development, implementation, and evaluation of examination programs for compliance with federal consumer protection laws involving fair lending, the Community Reinvestment Act, and BSA anti-money laundering requirements. Uh, She was formerly with the Federal Reserve Board as the manager of the Consumer uh, Community Affairs Program. Uh, She has also worked for the Conference of State Bank Supervisors. Uh, Her background includes managerial experience in both commercial banks and federal savings banks and she will be talking about the regulatory response to the subprime crisis, Ms. Yakima.
5: Well, hello, everyone. Uh, I'd like to thank the Federalist Society and, in particular, Judge Jones, for the opportunity to join you today to talk about what is a, as has been said, a, a very significant challenge, and some of the steps that the agencies, the banking agencies, are taking to address it. Okay. (coughs) Pardon me. Next slide, please. Well, a lot we've talked about so far, so I'm going to move relatively quickly. Uh, What some of the challenges that are most significant are the decline in home prices. And I'm going to show you some data that shows where we're seeing the most uh, difficulty in that area in a moment. Um, obviously, the resetting of, of adjustable rate mortgages, particularly for subprime borrowers, has, has been problematic. Uh, obviously, the rise in foreclosures and it has been a significant issue, too. Uh, liquidity and stock market uncertainty, unless you've been living under a rock, and certainly none of you have been. Uh, you're well aware of that. And we are seeing more of the uh, legal and reputation risks for some institutions that, while they didn't originate the loans, did acquire them. And as they've gone bad, uh, we're working with some of them to to address some of the fallout. Next slide, please. This slide shows you where we're seeing uh, a softening in home prices across the country. Uh, There's good news and bad. Uh, this is between t- basically August of 07 and August of 06, and you can see a, a weakening, and I don't know how many of you are from the uh, this area, the D.C. metropolitan area, but this area has seen some softening after a you know, rapid increase over many, many years, or several years, uh, down f- between zero to five percent of a decrease in, in home prices. Much of New England is facing that as well Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut. Uh, there's a bright spot in, up in Maine. There's, there's some bright spots across the, the west, but you can see in Nevada, Arizona, Florida and Louisiana, uh, down ten to f- 5 to 10 percent, and California, more than 10 percent, where a lot of the loans that I'm going to talk about were made. So that's driving, as has been said, a lot of the fallout. If you had a, a, a model where you thought, well, I'm not going to stay in the home that long, but if I do, that my property is going to continue to increase, and some borrowers are underwater now, so it's... Uh, it's a challenge. Next slide. The with respect to subprime arms, uh, th- there's two twenty-eights, fixed two years adjustable for the next twenty eight three twenty sevens the same except for a three and twenty seven year period. There's interest only. Um, uh, there's two twenty eight interest only loans. So we the market evolved and that benefited us all in terms of the types of mortgage options available to American consumers. What I'm going to, to point out over the next few slides is that the, the, the imprudent underwriting um, has, been, has been problematic. And what you can see here is that although we've seen a lot of pain, and it's been uh, from USA Today to the New York Times, widely publicized, the the pain is not yet over, and in fact, the worst may be yet to come. If you take a look at subprime arm resets, um, almost a doubling between November of this year and uh, up to March of 08, up to approximately 110 million more in resets in subprime. I'm also responsible for the consumer complaint function at the Office of Thrift Supervision. And what we hear from many borrowers is perhaps to, uh, well, points that both Alan Fischbein and uh, Alex made, uh, a, a lack of cognizance, a lack of awareness about the terms and how high their interest rate could go. Uh, and some, so, some stories you hear mortgage broker, but the mortgage broker told me that even though I knew my loan could go up, but there would be no problem with me refinancing when the property value declined, that was not an option. So one of the things I like to talk to when I talk to individuals, I like to remind them, don't be persuaded by um, caveats or comforting words that that anybody might share with you. Make sure you understand and can handle uh, the terms in your loan. Next slide, please. Uh, past due in subprime is obviously declining. If you look from about, uh, well, from 2005 up, you can see almost a, a doubling in, uh, in 30, 60, 90 days, those subprime loans that are 30, 60, 90 days past due. Um, next slide, please. But what is important to keep in mind is the percentage of the overall mortgage market that is f- focused in subprime lending. Prime lending is still the vast majority. you have got about 76.7 percent this as of uh, October, according to Mortgage Managers Association, about 14 percent in uh, subprimes, either fixed or adjustable rate arms. Um, and. The, the role of GSEs and government, as, as has been mentioned, uh, FHA reform hopefully is one solution. So I wanted to share that with you, too, in terms of the overall makeup of the market. Next slide, please. Those that are soli- serious delinquent, 90 days or in foreclosure, Alan uh, mentioned that uh, there's been a lot of estimates, a lot of analysts, kind of projecting how much pain there's yet to be. Um, you can see, again, from about August of 2005 to September, a sharp increase in those loans that are their 90 days past due are already in foreclosure. Um, and we, we get we get a lot of these calls and a lot of requests for help. Next slide, please. Non-traditional mortgage lending guidance. So what the heck were the agencies doing? When I was at the Fed in a between the well, some of the agencies as early as 2003, 2000, 2004 began to see this this weakening in underwriting standards. In 2005, the agencies proposed guidance on non-traditional loans. This is for loans that had uh, features that allowed people to defer payment of principal, in some cases payment of interest. And what we saw over time, and there were several large mainline thrifts that had concentrated in this market, particularly in California, where the cost of housing has been traditionally so high, these products for prime borrowers had been in place for more than 20 years. What you saw was this flood of new entrants in that space. And what you also saw as more Companies, many of them non-not federally regulated, and many of them not um, insured depository institutions. But as more competition came in in that space, we saw underwriting standards continue to slip. So the agencies put together, uh, next slide, please, guidance that reasserted, re, uh, uh, um, reminded uh, depository institutions about. Their obligations and past guidance, and the importance of internal controls, monitoring third-party originations, working with those mortgage brokers, um, stress testing their portfolios, and making sure adequate capital and allowance for loan loss and leases was 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 in place. Next slide, please. We also talked about the importance of making sure that a borrower really had the capacity to absorb an increase in payment, even assuming that the Again, the the home price appreciation was not there. Um, And what I saw is, like, I was one of the people working on the guidance, and we saw the underwriting from many of these lenders, and what struck me back then was that you saw the credit scores of many of these portfolios, and you saw where, at one point, the FICO cutoff was 770, you know, 760, and over time, and again, I believe in response to competition, there were some lenders that went as low as 560 550 for interest only loans. So it really became important for us to remind the in- industry um, that the other issue we saw was loan to value. We had people putting money down over time with the piggyback, you know, simultaneous second. Uh, So the first loan, and then I get a 10% interest only loan. I get another 10% loan. So I've put down either zero or nothing uh, as a down payment. We saw more of that taking place. And again, as FICO scores were declining. Next slide, please. So let's go to the following slide, illustrations. Next slide, please. So one of the things we reminded the industry was not only to make sure that their underwriting was sound, but that they were communicating clearly about the products that they were offering. So we talked to them about making sure that there was clear, timely disclosure to borrowers so that they, you or I could clearly ascertain um, what my payment obligation might be over the course of three to five years. For example, if I have an interest-only loan, making sure people understand that they're not building up equity. So we put together, we put that in the guidance, and then we developed illustrations to help lenders as a tool to comply with what we were asking them to do. So we showed three different types of disclosures, the the monthly mortgage payment, disclosure, um, and, and definitions, and also, again, the impact of these different products. Next slide, please. We also, it's funny, one of the other, I wear lots of hats at OTS, one of my other responsibilities is I'm the one that gets to go up to the Hill and talk about what we're seeing and why the heck we didn't do more and why the heck we didn't do more sooner. That's a lot of fun. Um, (laughs) When we came out with the non-traditional mortgage guidance, uh, I think it had been in place for 48 hours and we got called to the Hill to talk about the impact of the guidance. We said, well, it's a little early. Uh, but the but the real uh, message was, uh, what were we doing for subprime products? Because still the the the, the predominant uh, borrower in nontraditional was prime. So what were we doing to help subprime borrowers? Well, we were working on additional guidance, the 228, 327s, not just those products, but we worked on pro- guidance to address products that had either. Um, high payment caps, no payment caps, limited documentation, products that generally resulted in frequent refinancing, as Alan has mentioned, um, and were prepayment penalties. One of the things that we saw, and sometimes I have to say lenders and not just, you know, many times they're not insured depository institutions. Sometimes they are. But sometimes, uh, a judgment that drives pricing and premium and yield and market share is not in the long-term best interest of the institution. And we, when we see things like prepayment penalties that exceed beyond the initial fixed rate period, like a 228 where a prepayment penalties in place for 30 months, in other words, kind of trapping someone into the product, not a good thing, not a good thing. The guidance addressed that. So the guidance talks about making sure, again, the underwriting back to the basics, you know, the five C's of credit uh, are in place, and making sure that the institution takes into account not only ability to make the principal and the interest payment, but what about the taxes and insurance? We saw in a lot of instances subprime uh, products where there was no escrow for taxes and insurance. And in some cases, the materials that the borrower received wasn't, we're not necessarily clear that they weren't escrowing. growing. In other words, in six months, you're going to be responsible to come up with thousand dollars, and that that was um, uh, one of the issues that we 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 wanted to make sure institutions were very clear about that. Um, document repayment capacity, income, clear and balanced information, just like with non-traditional guidance about the payment shock, the presence of prepayment penalties. If you if a, if you offer a stated income product. At a premium, make sure the borrower knows that if I bother to t- submit my W 2s, I don't have to pay that premium. So, making sure clear and, and balanced information. So, then we put together illustrations that, that those were out for uh, comment. The comment period is closed. We're in the process of finalizing that in recognition of the, the comment. Um, next slide, please. Next, following slide, please. We also issued in in, in April a statement uh, responding to rising foreclosures. We asked our institutions to work with their borrowers to the extent that they could, to the extent that they could uh, transition uh, borrowers, next slide please, um, into lower cost um, products, helping them stay in the home reminding them about the the opportunity to have home ownership counseling. We reminded them that that was helpful. We also reminded them that CRA credit, if you'll go to the next slide, please, is available when they do that. Um, I'd like to leave you with a couple of thoughts. Um, First of all, to to Ann's point up front, and and, and I've mentioned, a lot of the lending that we saw, what we've seen, that have resulted, that has resulted in, in the, the, the pain that's in the mortgage market, um, was originated from uh, non-insured institutions. Some by insured institution, but a lot from non-insured institutions. To get our arms around that, we, the banking agencies, are um, have launched a pilot. The F- Federal Reserve Board and the OTS, we have responsible for holding companies. So we launched a pilot to make sure we understand. When there is an affiliate, when there's a company that has a major, a significant subprime portfolio that we're going in, we're looking at their their their, um, their lending, their compliance with consumer protection laws, and we're sharing with, with the same program. Now, that's not new for OTS, but we're looking to formalize that product. How often do we go in and look at those institutions? So I wanted to make that clear. Uh, uh, point. The second thought I'd like to leave you with is that our director, John Rich, has been very clear. When you look at the challenge in the mortgage market and when I hear about the subprime lending fallout, it's important to note that subprime lending per se is not nefarious. It is not necessarily... Um, uh, a disaster waiting to happen if it's underwritten prudently. Failure to underwrite prudently, failure to be communicative in, about the product features, that is what m- largely has resulted in, in some of the issues that we're seeing today. So as the Congress and other policymakers propose solutions, we would like to see at the OTS not, an, not a complete walk away, not a complete credit crunch for a segment of the market that has been well served by opening the doors to homeownership. So I'll leave you with that point.
1: All right. It, uh, well, I don't know if this is on. We have time for questions, so if you would step up to the
6: mic. Hi, uh, my name is Bradley Gottfried. I don't know if this is working, but uh,
1: Sp- speak uh, up or I'll restate it. The,
6: um, the, the, uh, one of the themes of this, this weekend was American exceptionalism, and I think that uh, it's not working. Uh, w- one of the themes was American exceptionalism, and I think uh, home ownership or as a, as a core American value, it is one of the things that uh, that's kind of American exceptionalism. And I wonder, um, given increased geographical mobility, given increased um, mobility across uh, jobs and even careers, uh, whether that still makes sense, whether uh, it makes sense to still have so many government regulations and incentives to own homes uh and to encourage people to have all their, their uh, this huge asset in a, in a single, I mean, uh, so much of their wealth in a single asset and not move to a more diversified uh, portfolio.
1: Are you directing that to a particular person?
6: Well, any, anybody who thinks that that would be a.
1: I would just, I think we can answer that pretty. Is there anyone on the panel who thinks that we ought to have less commitment to home ownership in this country? No. No. <laughs>
4: could, I, could I add something to yes, that? Yes, um, I think the uh, home ownership, or, or more uh, precisely property ownership, is a, a deep need probably down to, to our basic biological uh, levels of territoriality. Sure. But uh, there is an issue about how concentrated your portfolio is <coughs> as the gentleman rightly Brings up, and you might want to own a home, but not necessarily the most expensive one that you could possibly get into by running your loan-to-value ratio up to 100 uh, percent and uh, putting your ability to service the loan at risk. We may want to think about a, a home, but at what price? Part of this bust we're in was was that people were uh, were making decisions to buy. Houses at a price that wasn't uh, sensible for them.
3: Well, can I just add, add to that as well? Um, certainly, we at Consumer Federation of America have been strong supporters of expanding home ownership opportunities, and we recognize that it um, it's a critical means for wealth building for many uh, families, particularly modest income families. But what this current crisis uh, suggests is that. Um, sustainability uh, is extremely important as well uh, it's not enough to uh, expand ways to finance uh, people to get into homes if the loans that are being made are ultimately not sustainable and the borrower doesn't have ability to truly afford that mortgage um, ultimately it's counterproductive and in fact there's research that suggests that as a result of this run up in faulty lending um, we've seen a decline in home ownership right now and I think unless we come up with the appropriate set of protections to restore homeowner and investor confidence in the market, uh, it's going to be very difficult to turn that around for at least the near term.
7: Mr. Ely. Um, Yes, Bert Ely, uh, thank you very much. Uh, First of all, for posing a question to Alan, I wanted to say when uh, Mr. Pollack talked about uh, his Planck theory I first saw him present that 22 years ago at a conference in Chicago talking at that time about corporate treasurers buying uninsured CDs in large insolvent banks. So this is hardly a new idea uh, by, by Alex. It just applies now to a different situation. That was a new idea when I thought of it. But. <laughs> that may well have been the case, but I think it shows uh, the fact that uh, what's going on in this crisis now is hardly unique. Um, Uh, But my question for Alan is this. Alan, there is uh, uh, mortgage reform legislation pending in Congress. The House passed it uh, Thursday evening. There's a lot of concern among lenders about the negative impacts that's going to have uh, on the uh, housing finance marketplace for anything less than a pristine prime loan. What is your take on uh, that legislation? What concerns do you have about it? And uh, what fixes to that legislation should be considered if and when the Senate uh, Banking Committee takes it up.
3: Well, thanks for asking that question. A bill did pass the House um, this week and it passed on a bipartisan basis uh, uh, overwhelmingly, I must say, and it sought to address um, uh, a series of practices that have led to this current crisis. Um, I think it's still being worked on and, and, and perfected but I thought what the intent of the legislation was to achieve a balance of requiring minimal uh, standards of protection um, for all loan originators in the marketplace but concentrate some, some basic critical protections on the subprime market which has been the source of uh, most of the difficulty. Um, we, uh, we think there's a lot of positive features in the bill particularly in terms of the substantive protections. For example, the bill would ban the use of prepayment penalties in the subprime market, which really have contributed to the current crisis because they have locked borrowers into expensive loans and made it very expen- uh, expensive for them to get out of their loans, uh, often having to pay five or $10,000 for the right to refinance. Uh, this bill would eliminate that practice. Um, but we're really looking forward to the bill being Strengthened in some critical areas where we think it needs to be strengthened. And that's in particular is that consumer remedies in this bill really are quite modest uh, and we really are concerned about whether they will provide sufficient incentive in particular for the secondary market to do the kind of due diligence it needs to do to make sure it's, uh, it's really uh, watching who it buys loans from and, and, and is, uh, has some confidence in the quality of, uh, of, of the mortgages that they're purchasing. And secondly, and I think this is important to to this group, is that um, it it really kind of reduces the role of state regulation with respect to the secondary market. Um, We think state regulators actually have been the lead regulators in a lot of the abusive uh, lending that's occurred in the country. Uh, And this bill would actually limit their ability to to bring those suits. Um, um, Some of the major uh, litigation that's resulted from abusive practices, for example, with respect to um, Ameriquest, which was sued by 49 state attorneys general, uh, resulted in a major settlement. Um, and other suits that have been brought against the securitizers of mortgages might be uh, might be limited um, under the provisions that passed the House of Representatives. You, you, that's a good thing, huh? It's a good thing that 49 uh, state attorneys generals could find um, systematic patterns of abuses and taking advantage of borrowers as a market, as, as, the, as the, mo- the business model that the company used for making money. Um, and, and I don't think that promotes a, a fully effective and functioning market. And actually works against the interests of responsible lenders in the marketplace who are providing good products out there but have to compete with the crap.
1: Okay.
3: <laughs> Quick, a quick follow-up. Do you see more
7: class-action litigation coming out of these reforms? May
1: I, may I ask Ms. Camfield to comment? Yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> we have a slightly different view. <laughs> um, the Consumer Mortgage <laughs> wow, Coalition nice is a <laughs> yeah, exactly is a trade association of national mortgage lenders, servicers, and service providers. And our companies, for the most part, are federally regulated and examined. There are some that are not, um, but they're all large. They're all well capitalized, and uh, really, we're not, uh, for the most part, had more conservative underwriting practices uh, than some of the lenders that have gone bankrupt. Not entirely, as, Mon- as uh, Montri said, but uh, I think largely. Um, when we looked at the House bill, uh, we admit that there needs to be restructuring in the mortgage market, and the industry's got to change the way the whole thing is structured. Um, but when we looked at the House bill, because of the combination of the li- extensive liability that's going to attach to the loans, uh, we, we really won't know if we're going to be able to make a good mortgage before we make the mortgage. Um, we will be out of the subprime space. We will not be making subprime loans, and will we, we will not be making any hybrid arm products in the prime mortgage space. Um, as M- Montrice mentioned in her, uh, her remarks uh, a lot of these products have been around for many many years it 's not that they 're necessarily new, but they used to be offered to a narrower band of consumers uh, and What happened is is that some of the lenders in the marketplace because they could get you know funding for this um, basically gave those products out to a much broader group of consumers who were all banking on price home price appreciation in their in their you know the value of their real estate and um, as a re- but the reaction in the house, to our mind, is an overreaction. Um, if it passes or were to get enacted into law, I don't think subprime loans will be made. And some of the prime loan products will be taken off the market as well. I think it would be very damaging because as these consumers are whose arm loans are resetting, um, they're going to need some product choices. So you don't want to put them back into a real risky loan, but they are going to need some product options here and um, taking off a host of products I think will be very, very damaging to the economy and to them.
1: I, of course, cannot take a position on pending legislation, but just as a matter of principle, I would say the next worst thing to turning credit decisions over to judges, which is (laughs) what happens if you allow mortgages to be written down in bankruptcy according to each judge's individual preference and decision about what is right, is to turn those decisions over to class action lawyers. (laughs) (laughs) Judge,
3: could could, could I actually comment on that? The the bill was very carefully written to, in most cases, it does not uh, permit class action litigation. It only involves consumer remedies with respect to individual uh, consumers. So I think class action is largely off the table with respect to this legislation.
1: Don't creative lawyers mass classes? I mean, amass groups of cases sometimes.
2: We would have our... our, The law firm that we have on retainer that did an analysis has a slightly different take.
5: (laughs) So,
8: Uh, I'm not sure turning it over to Congress would make it even better. That's uh, true. (laughs) um, Here's the problem I have. First of all, I confess I'm an economist, but a lot of the stuff that's being said here, I'm missing something. And When... uh, Uh, you have like the 89 problems that you were talking about before. Economists, you know, people seem to be making mistakes, but it was obviously in their financial interest because of the federally guaranteed insurance that caused there to be this Mm -hmm. gap between what was the right thing to do and what the regulations caused it to be in in their interest. And I hear a lot of discussions here today about how brokerage uh, uh, commissions caused these people to go and get loans that they shouldn't have. and discussions about how regulations seem to be protecting the investment bankers that, as best I can tell from the last of discussions, yes. you all seem to think that they're idiots in some way. And I guess I just have a hard time believing mm-hmm. that they need to be protected and that there's these mistakes that are there. My, I want to have something else, and maybe the person who comes after me that knows something about this, she'll have, Simone will have something to say about this, <laughs> but there's this gap between, uh, you know, what you're saying here and why I can can believe that these guys have these incentives to make these mistakes. And I guess the final thing is I'm worried just in general, Congress coming in with a lot of these regulations, raising the cost of mortgages. Some of the discussions you've been having about possible drops in prices in the market, I believe just because of the possible cost of the regulations can cause Mm -hmm. mortgages not to be made and uh and these drops that you're predicting to maybe occur simply because even talking about changes in the regulation. Uh, Alex is probably the best one to answer this, but
2: I don't, I don't
1: think that's a question so much as a speech, but if Mr. Well I want to right. know what the gap
8: is. I want to know what I want to know what the difference is between understanding something like the savings and loans problems versus this, where we're just asserting that these people are
4: dumb.
0: John, uh, as you know, I'm
4: not an economist, although I'm sometimes taken for one. I, as I tried to point out with my quote about the rocket scientists, this is not on the, on the part of the financial actors on Wall Street, an issue of people being dumb. This is the, These are extremely intelligent, extremely smart people. And one of the great um, paradoxes of the history of financial busts, uh, which goes back centuries and um, the great economic historian Charles Kindleberger estimated there's a financial bust about once every 10 years over a period of centuries is that they're, they're carried out by very smart people. Uh, and there's a, there's a whole very interesting literature about how that happens that I, that I won't go into. Secondly, on the regulation party, it's certainly true as it, in the general history of financial busts that the political and regulatory response is typically pro-cyclical. That is to say, when it's already going down, the write-offs are already through, people are already going bankrupt on both the borrower and lender side, and losses are large, you tend to get a political and regulatory reaction which pushes the market further down in this pro-cyclical way, and the anticipation of that, of course, feeds into prices in the market.
1: We're a little bit over time, but I'd be happy to take a couple more questions if the audience is engaged.
9: I just wanted to thank Ms Yakimov because I 'm actually encouraged by her remarks. I think she really gets it, um, and I, I think um, uh, I think Treasury and the Federal Reserve have been doing wonderful things. But I had to come up and comment on one of Ms Canfield's remarks because one of the two German banks that went down did not have subprime loans. they had a sieve which had all AAA rated, non-subprime, but in July when the rating agencies changed their methodology, that's what caused, um, Mm -hmm. when you get a downgrade in a CIV, you have to have liquidity providers because you can't have less than AAA in a Civ. They were all still performing loans. The liquidity providers didn't come in because of a crisis of confidence. It wasn't because the loans weren't performing. So, you know, they were not, you know, idiots over there, they, but they didn't have a good federal functioning regulator like the OCC. If you look at a bank that did it right, Bank of Scotland, um, they had a problem, but their sieve wasn't so big to their balance sheet that they were able to be there with the liquidity. Temporary impairment, these will these will come back. Mm-hmm. But now it's gone into a cycle, and I would just hope, Ms. Yakimov, that you are going to resist these calls to add more litigation into the market and also these calls to make banks keep the risk on their balance sheet when that will, I mean, I think what you're doing is the right thing, you know, more disclosure, better disclosure, um, perhaps different products, but I hope that you're resisting this call to litigation and Mr. Fishbein, I'm would like to know, are you doing anything on what I thought was an excellent proposal from the Bush administration to get states to stop mortgage recording taxes for
3: these people in a
9: refinance mode?
3: uh, Well, let me address that. Um, Not uh, on that specific. uh, The Bush administration announced um, uh, uh, Hope Now initiative. Uh, to uh, really recognizing the growth of the crisis and the fact that 2 million homeowners are likely to lose their homes. And there are a series of steps, and and, and some of them are quite useful that they're taking. The major step and the most immediate way to help at-risk homeowners, however, is loan modifications. And unfortunately, because of the complexity of the securitization process, it's stymied. That process and ability to do loan modifications is stymied. Moody's indicated the first six months of the year only 1% of loans that were hitting reset and uh, went into uh, any kind of modification, 1% of loans, even though you saw these numbers about the impacts and the numbers of uh, resets that are occurring and the unaffordability of many of these loans. And so that's why we're looking at this uh, bankruptcy fix because we need a a backstop because the securitization markets are afraid of litigation and liability from various investor classes shouldn't be the reason that two million people lose their homes. And um, if if the industry can't fix the problem, which apparently they cannot, then there should be a public policy fix for the problem.
2: I, I have to respond to that. We are all, everybody, first of all, I think our companies are buying up the AmeriQuest servicing portfolio, New Century servicing portfolios, the companies that have gone bankrupt. I think our members like Wells Fargo, etc., are very, very good lenders and very good mortgage servicers. In order to be a good mortgage servicer, you need three things. Really good investor relations, good systems, and well-trained personnel. And our, I think our companies have those skills. Um, The 1% number from Moody's, I don't even know where they got it because it just does not meet what we're seeing with our companies. Um, They are, they are, there's a very aggressive effort to modify loans and the number is actually, it's 1% of what is I think the question.
3: You ought to put out your own numbers. Yeah, yeah, we will
2: because I think that's the industry currently is. All right. Thank you. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> well, fascinating as this okay.
1: is, we have a ticketed lunch that's going to start in uh, less minutes, than probably. 10 minutes, <laughs> so we've run over. But I appreciate your attentiveness, and I certainly appreciate the panel's contributions to this <laughs> important debate. <laughs> <laughs>